If you have a Bible, please open to the book of Leviticus chapter 1. We will be looking at the first four verses of the book of Leviticus and expounding them. The title of today's sermon is Salvation, God's Idea, God's Way. Salvation, God's Idea, God's Way. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do come before thee. We thank thee for thy grace, thy mercy. We thank thee for thy steadfast love to us. Lord, we ask at this time that would bless the preaching of thy word. Lord, as we study thy word, O Lord, and open up its truths, that thou wouldst apply it to our hearts. Lord, that we might see thee, our Savior Jesus Christ, lifted up in glory. Lord, we might see him as all-sufficient, and by the power of the Holy Spirit live unto him and for him and with him. Lord, we thank thee for all thou hast given us and all thou hast done for us. And we ask, Lord, for thy guidance now as we study thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Salvation. God's idea, God's way. Salvation, as we read about in the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, is of the Lord, Jehovah. Salvation is something that distinctly belongs to him. It can be accomplished in no other way than by God. It's his prerogative to save. It's his uh, power by which any person can be saved. That's the whole theme of redemptive history, of the entire scripture, is that God is Savior, and that salvation is of the Lord. We're going to be looking at the Levitical sacrifices uh, for a bit today, looking at these first four verses in the book of Leviticus. Be looking at the sacrifices which God gave through the prophet Moses uh, to the nation of Israel, uh, making a way by which Israel, through these sacrifices, could make approach unto God, to be atoned by, for their sins by these sacrifices, to come unto him in an acceptable manner, to be received by him. It was only by their sins being remitted or done away with or atoned for in these sacrifices. And we know that these sacrifices are typical, meaning they are types, they are shadows, they point us to Jesus Christ. They're types and shadows of Jesus Christ. The whole Levitical priesthood, the laws, everything points us to Jesus Christ. Now, I wish that people understood the beauty of typology. Typology is the study of understanding the types and the shadows in the Old Testament and how they point us to Jesus Christ, their types, their emblems, their shadows, their analogies of Jesus Christ, if you will. And they all teach us something about the Savior who was to come by whom these sacrifices uh, were represented. They represented Jesus. They put before us in a picture who Jesus Christ is and, and did so for the people of Israel. Though they did not fully understand this, they did not fully understand that in every aspect of these sacrifices, Jesus Christ was typified, that Jesus was pointed to. Obviously, they didn't even know who Jesus was in the sense of that name, Jesus. There would be a man, Jesus of Nazareth. They knew that the Messiah should come, that he would be their redeemer, that he would redeem the people of Israel. But they did not understand that Jesus was coming. They had no idea that it would be Jesus of Nazareth, as we see even when Jesus of Nazareth did come, the Christ, the God incarnate, he was rejected by the people of Israel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, he gave them power to become children of God. So we do need to be careful with typology, with symbolism, with allegory. In the Old Testament, you can't take it too far. 
and that is not what we want to do today, but we should make ready use of typology and find Christ under every leaf of the Old Testament and not simply think that we have to get to the New Testament. These Old Testament laws don't really have anything to do with us. Of course, we're not doing the sacrifices. Of course, we're not bringing bullocks and goats and sheep and pigeons into a temple in Jerusalem and sacrificing them and trusting in them and, and doing these things. Of course, we're not. But they are pointing us to Jesus Christ, and they themselves represent what Jesus would do. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We, you know, you do want to avoid overemphasizing typology, but I do wish that typology was better understood and preached more upon, and that people had a better grasp of typology and saw more types and shadows in the Old Testament because it's beautiful. It teaches us all about Jesus every time we open the page. The entire book of Song of Solomon is a typology of Jesus and his church. It's a picture of Jesus, Christ and his bride, the church. Uh, You know, how many countless read the Bible in a year plans have probably been halted, stopped, made nothing by the book of Leviticus. People, you know, they, they cruise through, you know, Genesis and Exodus. Exodus is a little bit hard towards the end there. It's a little bit boring, a little bit dry. They get to Leviticus, they get to chapter five and they're like, forget this. Forget this. This is boring. These laws have nothing to do with me. But if they understood types and shadows, they understood typology and understood that Christ is pictured there for us in every aspect of those laws, then they would love, they would come to cherish the richness of Christ found within the book of Leviticus. After I read Matthew Henry's commentary on the book of the book of Leviticus, I came to think of Leviticus as one of my favorite books in the Bible because I saw Jesus on every single page of Leviticus. Now let's read together verses 1 through 4 of Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Verse 1. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's notice a few things in our text. We're going to look at three things. That salvation is God's idea. That salvation is to be done God's way. And then we'll look at our response to God's salvation. So first, salvation is God's idea. We saw that in verse 1, let's read it again. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. So God, God's idea, salvation is God's idea. He would have been just to leave us all in condemnation, just as he did the angels that sinned, right? He made no sacrifice for sins of the angels that, that, that sinned, that fell. He will judge them. He will put them into perdition, into their cursed inheritance, which is hell. But he, he was just in doing that. He was loving in doing that. He was merciful in doing that. He had no obligation to save the angels. And in fact, he has no obligation to save us. He would be just in leaving us to our own condemnation. We've chosen to sin, and he could punish us for our sins and remain who he is. 
He would have remained, in fact, loving, merciful, and gracious had he chosen to do so, to just leave us in sin. Since those things, God being gracious, God being loving, God being merciful, belong to his unchangeable attributes. They belong to his unchangeable attributes. Thus, how he chooses to manifest those attributes does not change the fact that he does have those unchangeable attributes. So he would have remained loving and just to send us all to hell. Now notice it says, and the Lord called to Moses. So this is God's idea. God chose to demonstrate his unchangeable attributes of love, mercy, and graciousness by making a way for man to be reconciled with him. God chose to demonstrate his unchangeable attributes. He didn't have to demonstrate them. He would have had still possessed those attributes of love, mercy, grace, had he not demonstrated them. However, God did choose to demonstrate them, to show that he is in this way. He did it in a way that would demonstrate his justice and his mercy. We remember we read about that in Romans 9, verses 22 and 23. That God chose some, some vessels upon whom he would show his grace and others upon whom he would show his wrath. So he made a way in this demonstration of his love, mercy, and graciousness in that in doing so, he would still remain just and merciful. He provided a way for the guilt of man's sin to truly be paid for and his justice satisfied while at the same time extending mercy to man so that God might be, as Romans 3.26 says, both just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. He demonstrated his mercy in such a way that salvation is, is offered to man, but God still remains just and the the judge of, of sin. He still gets to punish sin and yet still show mercy to man. At this point in Leviticus, as the, the book we're in right now, at this point, God was doing this through types and shadows of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which all pointed to the coming fulfillment of those types and shadows in the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ. We read about that in John 1.29, where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Notice also from where, or from whence, God gives these gracious commands to the people of Israel. It says that he gave them out of the tabernacle of the congregation, namely from the mercy seat in the tabernacle, this temporary and portable temple that the people of Israel were to construct and carry around with them in the wilderness until they came into the promised land and built a temple. So this temporary and portable temple, the mercy seat which was within it, in that tabernacle, God cries out and gives these commands out of the tabernacle of the congregation. It is God's prerogative to save. We have to remember that. This is God's idea. If man is to be saved, he is to be saved by none other than God. For it is God whom man has sinned against, and only God can provide a way out. This teaches us also that all of God's commands, which he gives to man, are gracious. They come from the mercy seat, all of his commands. Now, I know that might be a little bit controversial, but think of it this way. I've I've used this illustration before. If I go to my son and I tell him, Aaron, when you're 18, I will buy you a car if you memorize the book of Romans and can recite it to me without making any mistakes. So I've made a covenant of works in a sense with him. Now, I did that graciously. It's gracious. He didn't deserve for me to buy him a car in the first place. I could have done what I chose, whatever I choose to do with my money. 
but I'm offering him a way by which he can have a car gifted to him, given to him. He can earn this car by memorizing the book of Romans and being able to recite it. So it's a merciful and gracious thing I'm doing in offering him this law, this commandment, this covenant of works. So I believe that all of God's covenants are gracious in nature, though they don't all reflect or have the substance of the covenant of grace in them, because the covenant of grace alone is what saves us. Yet anytime God interacts with man and and makes any kind of covenant with him, it's out of God's grace. He doesn't have to do so. He doesn't have to interact with man. He didn't even have to create man. And especially he doesn't have to interact with sinful man. So we have to remember that all of God's commands are gracious and come to us from the mercy seat. They are intended for our good and his glory. They are not intended to hold us down or beat us down. However, they are insufficient to merit us salvation, but they were never intended to do so, right? They were never meant to be able to attain salvation. The law, as Paul says in Galatians 3.24, was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Next, remember that man does not choose to be saved. Man chose to sin against God, to rebel against God and his laws, and to declare war on his very person. That's what man chose to do when man fell into sin, and all of us since Adam are born into sin, having a sin nature and actual sins that we commit. We choose to rebel against God's laws. We, ch- we choose to declare war and be at enmity with him. That's our choice. We don't choose to be saved. It is God's prerogative to save, not ours. And he alone is able to do so. Psalm 37 verse 39 tells us, But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord, not of themselves. Man, you have to remember, would be perfectly content to remain dead in his sins and transgressions and go to hell. C.S. Lewis would often say that hell is locked from the inside. Obviously, there's, there's issues there, but you get the picture he's trying to paint for us there. He, what he's trying to communicate is that man hates God in his natural state. Unless he be regenerate and brought to faith in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will always resist God. He will always fight against God. So man would be per- perfectly content to just remain dead in sin and transgression and go to hell. It is due to the love, mercy, power, and good pleasure of God alone that any person is saved. That any person is saved. So let us remember that God's decision to save was not reactionary either. He did not save men because they sinned. He didn't create the world and create man and and say, all right, this is going to be good. It's all very good. Hope nothing bad happens to it. And then man sins. And now God's reacting to it. God's immutable. He does not change. He does not save men because they sinned. Rather, God has decreed both the fall of man into sin and the subsequent salvation of those who receive Christ by faith. Both. He's decreed both. Jesus Christ is, as Revelation 13, 8 says, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It was God's eternal decree to save man through the death of Jesus Christ who was to come. From start to finish, salvation is the idea of God and the work of God alone. Let's turn to point two, which is the way or the manner of salvation. Number, t- uh, number two, God's way for salvation. This is going to be found for us in verses two and three. Let's read verses two and three. It says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, 
If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. So God's way of salvation. In our text, God goes on to tell Moses, if any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, that's verse 2. If any man is to bring an offering or to make use of the means of salvation that God is now offering here graciously, it must be in this way, God is saying. It must be done in this manner as I'm about to lay out. That's what God's saying. It has to be done this way. It's my prerogative to save. It's my idea to save. Now I'm laying out how it shall be done. It's God's way, just like it is God's idea. He has a specific way in which we must be saved, if we're to be saved at all. And it can only be done this way. So God has offered salvation in a specific way. If anyone's going to get saved, it's going to be like this and, and nothing else. Salvation is exclusive. Exclusive. Only those who come to Christ may be saved. We can learn using the typology of what's being taught here. That just as Moses is giving these commands, the Lord's giving these commands through Moses saying, here's how it's to be done. Here's how it's to be done. If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, and then the 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 details. So too, we, if we are to find salvation at all, it must be through Christ as we are taught in the scriptures. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The apostle Peter told the hearers of his Pentecost sermon, he said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's Acts 4, 12. So let us, dear church, be careful to come to God in no other way than by his provided means. Let us be careful to come to God in no other way whatsoever than by his provided means. Namely, through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who is our true Passover. Notice also in verse 2, it says that their sin offering must be an offering taken, quote, of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. It's the end of verse 2. So the type and shadow of this sin offering being now fulfilled in Christ, as we know, let us notice then, therefore, that Christ himself, our true sin offering, was taken of the herd and of the flock, in that he was taken from the mass of humanity. He was taken out of man. The second person of the triune God was, as John 1.14 teaches us, made flesh and dwelt among us. The second person of the triune God became man to die for man as God. The second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, became man to die for man as God. The Apostle Paul reminds us that the sum and the substance of all true religion is, that, is this one great truth, namely, God was manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. So the God of all creation... The God of all glory and power and wisdom became a human infant born of a virgin girl named Mary. He became part of our flock, if you will, of our herd, that he might be taken from it. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, became man to live and to die on behalf of his peculiar people upon whom he had set his love from all eternity. Let us remember that because Jesus was taken from the herd of mankind, therefore, we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. That's Hebrews 4, 15. 
So Jesus of Nazareth, who the Messiah, the Christ, God incarnate, took upon himself our form that he might take upon himself our guilt and obtain for us a righteousness that he gives us, a righteousness that he gives us. So Jesus Christ took upon himself flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us so that he might take upon himself our guilt. So he took upon himself our flesh and our form so that he could take upon himself our guilt and obtain for us righteousness, living in our flesh, that he can give to us as though it were our very own. In Hebrews 2, 16 and 17, it says, For verily he took not on the nature of, took not on him the nature of angels, meaning Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So that proves to us that Jesus Christ took upon him the form of the children of Abraham, humans. He took upon himself the seed of Abraham. He came from a Jewish lineage. He came from the people of Israel, a human being, to die for human beings. This is the way of salvation. It requires the God-man Christ Jesus. It requires that our Savior be one of us, to be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, to be our elder brother. This is the way that is required. And this is what God has done. There is no other way. Next, God's way of salvation requires that our sacrifice not only come from the common stock of mankind, meaning be a man, but also that this burnt offering from the herd be a male without blemish, it says in verse 3. A blemished sacrifice would not do. The Israelites were not to bring a sacrifice, the animals that they didn't want to use anyway, ones that were deformed or wounded or would be of no value to them anyway. Oh, we have this one with a broken leg or this one that was born deformed. Here, we'll give that to the Lord. That's not what he asked. They were to bring the animals that were without blemish, it says. And this teaches us that God deserves and desires our very best. Recall that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by faith, Hebrews 11.4. And his faith, Abel's faith, was manifested in his bringing as sacrifice to God, the best of his flock. Remember in Genesis 4, 4, it says the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof is what Abel brought to God. He brought the best of the best. So too, God gave us as Christians, as believers, the best of the best in Christ. Nothing less than a perfect man could obtain righteousness on our behalf. We have to understand this. Although Jesus was a man and partook in him, He partook as a man in all the infirmities, weaknesses, and trials that are common to all humans, yet he did so without sin, Hebrews 4.15 tells us. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness, as as he says in Matthew 3, verse 15, also in Matthew 5, verse 17. The sacrifice which Christ made on our behalf was acceptable to God because Jesus was perfectly righteous and without sin. Just as the burnt offering of our text being talked about, which was typical of Jesus Christ, was required to be without blemish, so too the propitiatory sacrifice on behalf of sinners had to be without blemish, that is, without sin. One man cannot die in the place of another. He can't just take upon himself the sin of someone else. He can't die in the 
stead of someone else. One man cannot take upon himself the punishment due for the sins of another man. Why? Because all men have their own sins to bear for which they should be punished. And thus they cannot undertake for another. So how then did Jesus do this? Well, first, because he was divine and his life is of infinite worth, not like a man whose worth is, is, is not much. We are like dust. We are like drops in a bucket. The nations themselves are like a drop in the bucket before God. So we're of, we're of little worth in and of ourselves as human beings walking on this earth and living for 40 to 80 years, if we're lucky, and then dying. But not, not at all the case with Jesus. He's of infinite worth. He's God Almighty. And secondly, because Jesus was, without, Jesus was without sin. So first, because he is divine and his life is of an infinite worth. And secondly, because Jesus was without sin. So this is how he can undertake for us. In becoming man for us, Christ was... Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. So Jesus, Jesus became part of the flock to live blamelessly as a member of the flock, to be taken from the flock to die for the sins of the flock. He was able to do this because Christ, like this burnt offering, was to be without blemish. So he was without blemish. So he became part of the flock to live blamelessly as a member of the flock and then to be taken from the flock to die for the sins of the flock. This is why it had to be without blemish. And this points us to Jesus Christ, the true sacrifice for sins, the true Lamb of God, the true burnt offering, who was without blemish. Also, God's way of salvation requires that the burnt offering be offered by the worshiper, as verse 3 says, of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. The Israelite worshiper was to come of his own free will, his own choosing. He was commanded to freely, out of a loving obedience to God, bring this blemishless animal from the herd unto the Lord as a whole burnt offering to sacrifice it fully, burn it to ash. Nothing remains. Hold nothing back. So too, we must come to Christ of our own choosing, of our own free will. Well, aren't we Calvinists? How can sinners do this when they are dead in sins and transgressions, as Ephesians 2.1 tells us? Well, the simple answer is that they can't. Sinners can't come of their own free choosing, of their own free will. Their will must be made alive to God by grace, and then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are able to truly come of their own free will and faith to God. So, no injustice is done to the will of man by being made alive, and when we are made alive to God and we choose God, it really is our own choosing, but we couldn't choose unless God had made us alive. But also let us learn from this, that just as the Israelites were to make this sacrifice of their own voluntary will, so too Christ, who is the fulfillment of these sacrifices, gave himself freely of his own will for us. Jesus says in John 10, 18, No man taketh it from me, referring to his life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Let us see here, dear church, the love of Christ for us. He freely laid down his life for us. As our good shepherd, Christ says that I lay down my life for the sheep in John 10, 15. He voluntarily laid himself down for us. 
because of his love for us. To us, who are his sheep, he gives eternal life, he says, that they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. In John 10, 28, Jesus says that. So as Christians, whenever we doubt God's love and his care for us, let us ask ourselves this, dear church. Does, does he not love me? Did he not give himself for me and that freely of his own choosing? You see, a, a frequent meditation on God's free love for us in Christ is a strong tower, a strong bulwark against doubt. Make ready use of it, dear Christian. Think about Christ's free gift of salvation, how he freely laid down his life for, for you, his sheep, because he loved you. There is no other way given to us by which we may be saved, dear believer. This is the way. It's God's idea, and it's God's way. Salvation is laid out from beginning to end by God. We must come to salvation God's way, because it is God's idea. He has made a way for us, and it is the only way for us. The only way the question, what must I do to be saved, can be answered is with these words that we find in Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So what must I do to be saved is the question we can ask that all human beings should ask and should be asked. The answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There is no but. There is no anything else there. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Not any works. Not any good doings of of our own choosing, of our own making. No making of our own path to God, but God making a path for us. And that path is this alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So though we are believers, we can often fall into the error of again thinking we have grounds of acceptance with God outside of Christ. That's something we fall into a lot. Works righteousness. Uh, getting brownie points with God, I've also often called it. We, we do something real bad. We step back. Okay. I need to do all these good things and have a really good prayer life, good Bible reading life, good whatever, and then come to God uh, once, once I've done a lot of good Christian things. No, not so. That's not any grounds of acceptance with God. You can only have acceptance with God through Christ. So we must combat this error of falling back into thinking that we have anything to do with our acceptance with, Christ, with God or our salvation. We must combat it. By constantly keeping before our minds God's way of salvation, which is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. That's it. That's how we combat the ideas that come into our heads that we somehow have merit with God by any other means than Christ, is constantly looking at what is God's way of salvation, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. Next, let us see in our text here how we are to respond to God's way of salvation. How should we then apply it? So this is number three, our response to God's way of salvation. Let's look at verse four to draw that out. Verse four, and what were the Israelites to do? And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. There it is, our response. The Israelite here was to bring the burnt offering into the tabernacle, just to take it from the herd, a, a, a male without blemish, 
bring it into the tabernacle and was to put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and was told then it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So again, remember that this sacrifice was typical of Christ. It points us to him. So what can we learn? Well, the Israelite was to make use of this way of reconciliation with God. It was in this dispensation of the covenant of grace. This is what God had revealed. Do this. This is pointing to the greater Messiah, a greater uh, sacrifice for sins, who will be the Christ, the Messiah. But at this point, this is what he's revealing. He was to bring it before God. The Israelite, the worshiper, was to bring it before God, before the mercy seat, and to trust in the sacrifice. He was to put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, in between the horns, and the horns represent strength. This symbolized the transferring of the worshiper's sins unto the animal, as well as his trust in the efficacy of the sacrifice on his behalf. So that's what this represented. It symbolizes the transferring of the worshiper's sins unto the animal that's going to be sacrificed in his place, as well as the efficacy of that sacrifice on his behalf. Now, some of the ancient Jewish commentators said that the worshiper should put not only one hand upon the animal's head, but, quote, put both hands upon it and lean with all of his weight upon it in order to demonstrate his utter dependence upon the sacrifice to make reconciliation for him with God. It showed his utter dependence, put both hands. So in like manner, we ought to put all of our weight, dear Christian, all of our trust, hope, and faith upon Jesus Christ, who is the true sacrifice for sin. Christ is our only hope. If we reject God's one way of finding reconciliation with him in Jesus Christ, Hebrews 10.26 says that there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. We're out of luck. This is it. This is God's way. So we have to trust in it with all of our might. He is the only propitiation for our sins, as 1 John 2.2 tells us. So dear, dear church, let us likewise, oh, let us likewise lean with both hands, full weight upon Jesus Christ. Let us trust in no other frame, no matter how sweet, no other frame besides Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let us not harden our hearts, as Hebrews 3.8 tells us, against God's provision. Let us not harden our hearts against, against God's provision. Let us also not neglect so great a salvation as we have freely given to us in Christ. You can find references there, Hebrews 3.8 and Hebrews 2.3. How do we do that? How do we not harden our hearts? How do we not neglect so great a salvation? We do this by trusting in him alone, in Christ alone, resting our full weight upon the efficacy of his sacrifice for us. Now, when we trust in the sacrifice of Christ alone, just as when the Israelites trusted in the sacrificed animal, then Christ's life, death, and resurrection shall be accepted for us to make atonement for us, as our text says. Just like the Israelites, they trust in the animal, they place their hand upon the animal, and it would be accepted to make atonement for them. So too, we trust in Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his current mediation for us, and he shall be accepted for us as an atonement for our sins. He is our only means of atonement, dear church. And when we trust in him, he is our atonement indeed. I'm going to say that again. Listen carefully. Jesus is our only means of atonement. And when we trust in him, he is our atonement indeed. So he's the only atonement that's offered to us. And when we do trust in him, he really is our atonement. 
For those who are, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, new creatures in Christ Jesus, God, for those who are new creatures in Christ Jesus, has made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 2 Corinthians 5.21. For us who are new creatures, who have been born again unto a living hope in Christ, given the Holy Spirit, washed with the blood of Christ, for, for us, Jesus is our atonement. Jesus was made sin for us, though he knew no sin, though he was sinless, though he was blameless and blemishless, so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the doctrine of propitiation, substitutionary atonement, imputation of righteousness upon us. Atonement, dear church, full atonement, complete atonement is made for us in Jesus. That's why on the cross he said, it is finished, full atonement. Through faith in Christ Jesus, the Lord God whom we are at odds with in our sin, becomes the Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah thirty three sixteen. Through Jesus Christ, our atonement, though we are born at odds with God in our sin, through faith in Jesus, the Lord God then becomes the Lord our righteousness, our righteousness even. Amazing. What better righteousness, dear Christian, than the Lord's own righteousness? What better righteousness could you be looking for? Don't try to make any of your own. No, but take the free righteousness given to you because it is the Lord's righteousness. He becomes our righteousness. What greater assurance can we have? What better sacrifice can be offered up for us than the righteous God himself? This we do actually have in Jesus Christ. Remember Romans 5, or 3, 24 and 25 tell us, that being justified freely, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, that's verse 23, and then being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. That's what's given to us. Though we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, though we were at war with God through Jesus, we can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption, the atonement that is in Christ Jesus. Because he was set forth as a propitiation in his blood, that by faith in his work, by faith in leaning both weight, both hands, our full weight upon his head and his work, we might be saved, we made righteous. Christ, dear church, beckons us to lean our full weight upon him. What other hope do we have? Lean our full weight upon him. He beckons us to do so, so that in and through him, atonement shall be accepted for us. I mean, Jesus calls out to us, dear church. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden with the law, with sin, and I will give you rest, he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ motions to us to come to him. He promises us, that that heavy load of sin can be cast off at the foot of his cross, and that the easy yoke of his righteousness, his light burden, would be placed around our neck, and that in doing so, we shall find rest unto our souls. Dear church, it is though he whispers sweet words of assurance to us, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. What more could we want, dear church? What more could we need in Christ, our true burnt offering, 
we have a sure and steadfast atonement. A sure and steadfast atonement. A true and solid way of salvation prepared for us. Let us, even as believers, continue to make use of it. As Christians, we can now come boldly under the throne of grace that we might find we might, we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what Hebrews 4.16 tells us, that as Christians, we can come boldly into the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, knowing that he himself hath suffered being tempted. He is able to succor or help them that are tempted. That's our high priest. That's our Jesus. He suffered being tempted, and he now knows how to help us who are tempted in this current life and our sin. He took it away. He beckons us closer to put our full weight, both hands, upon the efficacy and strength of his sacrifice for us. If the types and the shadows put here before us in Leviticus were gracious, if they were gracious means of acceptance with God, even then, though though in type and shadow, how much more then, dear believer, is our Christ precious? How much more precious is Christ? So, dear church, let us come, come, come unto him forevermore. Let us always come unto Christ. Though we are Christian, we don't need to come unto him again for salvation and constantly be asking for salvation and praying the sinner's prayer. That's not what I'm saying. But we must see the sacrifice of Christ laid out for us, given to us. And though we've come to embrace it and accept it and be washed by it, and that it is atonement for us indeed, let us continue to lay all our weight upon that. Not stop laying our full weight, both hands upon the head of Christ, trusting in him, saying, he is my head, he is my federal head, my redeemer, my savior, my strength, my power, my shield. Without him, I can do nothing and am nothing but sin. Let us come to him evermore, dear church. For him, Christ, shall we dwell with for all eternity. We will always be coming unto him. So let us make ready and frequent habit of it now. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank Thee, O Lord, for the opportunity to have a way to Thy Father through Thee. Lord, we thank Thee for Thy grace and Thy mercy. Lord, give us strength and conviction and power by Thy Holy Spirit to trust in Jesus, to lean upon Him. Give us the strength to do so. Give us the faith to do so, O Lord. Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. God, help us to come to thee daily, trusting in thy son, Jesus Christ, not trusting in anything else. Lord, we thank thee and we ask that thou would apply this word to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.